Welcome to the ESG Matters Podcast. I am your host, Ahmad Gomez. And if you like this content, please like, share, and subscribe to the ESG Matters Podcast on all podcast services. Thank you so much for your time, and let's get on with the show. Welcome back to the ESG Matters Podcast. This is your host, Amat Gomis. Today, we have Billy Grayson as our guest. Billy Grayson is currently the Executive Vice President of Centers and Initiatives at the Urban Land Institute, a nonprofit research and education organization with over 40,000 members worldwide. These members represent the entire spectrum of land use and real estate development disciplines. Prior to this role, Grayson was ULI's Executive Director at the Center for Sustainability and Economic Performance. Prior to joining ULI, he was the Director of Sustainability at Liberty Property Trust, a commercial real estate company where he developed and executed Liberty's sustainability strategy. Billy Grayson has an MBA and a Master's in Public Policy from the University of Maryland College Park and a BA from Claremont McKenna College. Thank you so much for joining the ESG podcast today. Thanks for having me. Just to kick things off, you have such a unique perspective, having worked both in the for-profit and nonprofit sectors dealing with sustainability. Can you discuss what you've seen as a fundamental blind spot that the for-profit and the nonprofit sectors have for each other? Sure. So I've had, let's see, three stints in the for-profit world in management consulting as sustainability director for a Fortune 500 electrical distribution company and a sustainability director for a Fortune 500 real estate company. I've had three stints in the nonprofit sector, now at ULI, before that with the Electronics Industry Citizenship Coalition, working on human rights and environmental sustainability electronics supply chain, and way, way, way before that uh, as an advocate with the Sierra Club on uh, wilderness preservation, and as well as energy efficiency and fuel economy standards. So it's been a wild ride. I think... uh, The biggest blind spot for the nonprofit community is actually understanding how real estate and and any business makes money, like how projects get financed, what the key economic drivers are for the decisions that get made in real estate in the built environment. I think if nonprofit organizers knew more about the financial structure and financial consideration of real estate deals, they'd be more effective at targeting their message to build the business case for sustainability. I think in the for-profit world, you often have blinders on. You're so focused on getting the deal done that it's hard to make the time and the space to consider new ways of tackling a problem or even just take the time to be more intentional and do more stakeholder outreach to get the best outcome for a project. Uh, High transaction volumes, a lot of pressures on delivering and executing a pro forma, and then getting a building built and full of tenants. Often it's hard to take time to look at new ways to do things. I 100% agree with you when it comes to nonprofits really, I think, needing to understand the financial impacts of the audience that they're talking to and understand how they can better build the business case for actions that they want to see taken by the for-profit sector. And conversely, understanding that for the for-profit sector to understand that nonprofits are there to sort of help you see what's around the corner and understand that there may be innovative techniques or ways that can help achieve goals that 
that we're all striving for. When you think about the nonprofit sector, especially with ULI, ULI has a really interesting model where they focus much more on a membership subscription model to really encourage more people to participate, especially for real estate. Have you seen participation increase in the sustainability sort of focused activities of ULI from its general members? Or are you seeing more so like a core group of members really focus on on sustainability and either they get really deep into it, but not a lot of growth sort of laterally, if that makes sense? Yeah, I'd say that we've seen a tremendous increase in interest in all things ESG. We see some members wanting to go deeper in climate mitigation in the past in net zero buildings. We see some members who are really concerned about climate risk and the impact of extreme weather events and the long-term threat of climate change on their business. And other members that really want to go deeper into healthy buildings or the intersection of health and social equity or just social equity in general uh, and figuring out ways to address the S and ESG. So just a tremendous amount of increased interest all around from our rank and file membership, as well as uh, what we're hearing from some of the key leaders in the organizations, people that are on our global governing trustees or on our America's board or global board. We actually have two different groups of members we work with on sustainability. One is just the rank and file ULI members who join on an annual basis. That's the 45,000 members we have. We work with them directly to provide them with content to understand the business case for sustainability and how to operationalize it in whatever they're doing within the built environment. The other group is our ULI Greenprint program, which is 55 corporate members who join almost like an industry association, but it's a you know, a do-gooder industry association where they agree to benchmark their energy and environmental performance and work together to reduce it over time and then share their lessons learned broadly with the broader ULI community. We've seen that group of members double over the last four years. I think that speaks volumes to how much publicly listed global real estate companies are focusing on ESG and trying to join organizations that'll give them the tools they need to advance their programs. Yeah, that also mirrors what I'm seeing externally as well when it comes to the increase in sustainability interest across all sectors in the past four years. One thing I think is interesting when you talked about the 55 members who really share best practices and are sort of folks who are really focused on providing innovative and interesting solutions. In the U.S., as you know, we really don't have a cohesive strategy coming out of COP21 or probably coming even out of COP26. We see a lot of different companies really trying to develop their own strategy. And it is a little difficult because there hasn't been, government's been kind of out of the loop. So I was wondering if you've seen maybe with those 55 members you talked about or with ULI generally, has there been an increase in ULI's presence to sort of fill that gap from government regulations and government guidance to help achieve some of these goals? Yeah, it's been interesting. We haven't seen a lot of federal guidance or leadership on climate mitigation over the past four or five years until recently. But we saw this tremendous proliferation of city governments many of whom signed on to the We Are Still In pledge or joined the Climate Mayors Initiative. Over 300 municipalities in the United States made a pledge to get to net zero by 2050 or sooner. And many of them started implementing policies and programs and regulations to help start driving the market in those cities in that direction. 
This is good for real estate because it creates a set of incentives to start getting on the path to net zero carbon. But it's also really complicated because if you're a national or global real estate company, it's tough to navigate hundreds of different cities with hundreds of different policies when it comes to energy efficiency, renewable energy, and decarbonization. So we've tried to help map those so that real estate leaders can navigate these emerging city policies, as well as better understand what's happening in Europe and Asia. And we've been trying to develop sets of tools that they can use to accelerate decarbonization cost effectively, whether they're in a regulated market that is making this a priority, or whether they're in a market that the only reason to do this is some tenants who care and reducing their operational expenses, which will create value over time. I agree. We're seeing, you know, with Local Law 97, the carbon emissions bill in NYC and in Boston, they've just enacted a building decarbonization ordinance. And I think there's a few other uh, cities that are maybe not as far along, but fairly close in developing some sort of decarbonization plan. And the tools that you talked about are really interesting because as someone who is a practicing, who's practicing for in a for-profit entity, as a sustainability professional, utilizing nonprofit resources like ULIs is critically important because you all done a lot of the due diligence and a lot of the homework for us to to really help us like make the case internally and then up and out to our clients and in commercial real estate. And I think also for anyone who has a large property portfolio, whether it be a large Fortune 100 company or a commercial real estate company. So it is interesting to understand that that is a value that, to your earlier point, that for-profit entities need to understand and need to really look to ULI and other nonprofits as because there's so many great resources there. It's great to hear that we're on the right track (laughs) with what we're doing. Yeah, because it's, it's so important, right? Like you said, there's so many so many different cities and that have their own sort of plan. Some of them are reporting out to CDP, the Carbon Disclosure Project. Some of them are trying to circumvent some of the questions when it comes to having a price of carbon. So they're really trying to come in there with a penalty that is essentially the price of carbon. And how do you manage all of that? Because if you're outside of one metropolitan region, you really need to understand how you can really interact across the board and help, whether it be your client internally or externally to to meet that demand. When you think about the ability of ULI to be that sort of thought leader and to be that help when it comes to sustainability, are you seeing things that you would maybe see as like emerging issues or topics that maybe are outside of the traditional environmental focus that are still sort of sustainability in nature? I ask that because I've started to see a lot of work around well-being, as you mentioned before, and also social justice and social equity. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that with ULI. Yeah, so we've seen an emergence in developers and owners who have moved from thinking just about climate mitigation and a path to net zero carbon to ones that want to think more about climate adaptation and climate risk. And we see more and more of these developers and investors looking to software providers and other modelers to help them understand their physical risks and figure out cost-effective ways to mitigate it. So it's sort of expanding the way that they look at climate change and climate disclosure and climate action. But you noted two other areas that we've seen a lot of growth as well. I mean, uh, the definition of healthy buildings has definitely changed due to the COVID pandemic, and we're spending a lot more time on 
uh, talking about ventilating air and cleaning surfaces than we were spending on, say, light and healthy foods and fitness and mind. But I think all of those components of what makes a building healthy are going to make that a trend that is here to stay when it comes to sustainability. And buildings will differentiate themselves based on how healthy they are, not just how green they are from a sustainability perspective. And then on the question of social justice, I think it's taken a while for real estate to figure out what our role can be in this area. For ULI, you know, we have to acknowledge that some of the structural racism and inequality that we see in cities was a result of our work and our members. And we need to think about whether there are ways that we can influence urban planning, zoning, infrastructure, and real estate development and investment to make our cities more equitable, which also will make them more sustainable. So a big part of what we're doing right now as an organization is one, figuring out on one hand how we can continue to diversify our industry, but also work on how we can address inequality in the communities in which we operate and make them more equal through the land use planning decisions that we make on the ground. That brings up a really interesting point when you talk about land use and its impact on communities and improving social equity. Have you seen developers start to question local planning offices or economic development organizations as to the ability to work with them to improve some of these things? Because one of the question, one of the concerns I have, right, is that oftentimes in planning, people will plan and have these great ideas, but the execution is the issue. The execution is what really causes sometimes more harm than good. So how have you seen your members sort of try to work to alleviate some of that? Or are there any sort of resources that you can see as emerging best practices that companies can use that either ULI produces or are looking to produce that would help with this situation? On that last question, we are in the process of going through a principles for social equity and real estate development exercise, working with community-based organizations who historically had often an adversarial relationship with some of the real estate development community to better understand how we can collaborate for better social equity outcomes. This will be available to the public and we're hoping that it'll help community-based organizations understand how to work with developers towards equity goals, but also help developers understand how to be a better ally with community-based organizations that are looking to address equity in their community. And that's, I think, one of the places where we can be more effective. I mean, developers can proactively work to influence policymakers to create a more equitable built environment, but they can also be an ally to the community-based organizations that are already been trying to do this for years and either remove opposition to the goals that they're trying to achieve or proactively help them get in the door to make these policy changes. And we've been working with Reconnect Rondo in the St. Paul area. We've worked with Fifth Avenue Committee in Gowanus, Brooklyn. We've worked with a number of community-based organizations in Los Angeles and Miami. Not necessarily to go fix, as the development community, what the policymakers are doing, but to go in together to have a better discussion about how we can drive equity and development in those communities. That's great to hear. And it goes back to your original point when you were saying helping 
nonprofits and for-profits understand the goal of each other's reason of being and making sure that people understand what you're doing from the for-profit sector is based on making the business case, making the volume, meeting certain goals and metrics, and understanding that the best way to engage with them is to understand where they're coming from. And similarly with the community-based organizations, understand the value that they bring, but also understand the history and why that they chose to certain goals or certain activities based on the desire to improve the local community in which they live and operate. So I, th- I think that's a, it's an interesting way to tie that back to what you said earlier. Have you started to think about local or state and federal laws or incentives or disincentives that you're seeing with ULI uh, chapters in different countries that you think could start to be imported to the U.S. and starting to prep members to say, this is something we're seeing across the globe. It's not here in the U.S. yet, but it may start to show up. That's a tough question. Every country has a different way of addressing equity considerations through public policy. In Singapore, for instance, when they're building new multifamily developments, there are strict requirements on the diversity of ethnicities that will be allowed to move into a building. And the idea there is with a a history of racism, there needed to be some proactive action by the government to actually physically mix people in the same building so that they could get to know each other better. And hopefully that would start to address, you know, some of the, the issues that the country historically had with the history of colonialism. I don't know that the Singapore model would necessarily work in the United States. And it's a challenge to figure out what cultural models would easily be applied to the U.S. to address social equity. So I wish I had a better answer on that question, but I really think it's probably best to look to neighborhood examples or other U.S. cities and where they've been able to make progress on some of these challenges. That's a great point. And pivoting from the social side back to the environmental side, are you seeing any maybe environmental regulations from overseas that you think would be an easier import into the U.S. than others that you're starting to talk with members about? The reason I ask selfishly is because I'm always interested in understanding what's next, what's coming. With coming out of COP26, I'm just curious to see if you've started to drop some breadcrumbs to your members to say, this is a value that we're seeing other countries start to implement, maybe in the EU region or the UK or or MIA. I think, you know, the Neighbors Program in Australia, where they are aggressively benchmark energy efficiency and make those scores as well, as visible on a buildings and as well broadcast through the tenant community as possible, is a really interesting model. It's sort of like US's energy star on steroids. And as a result, they've started to see tenants making significant strategic business decisions based on what they're learning about the energy performance of the buildings that they might be able to rent. I think that's an interesting model that could be applicable to many cities in the U.S. You know, I I do think that one of the things that's the most important that cities have started with is just benchmarking, getting whole building data, making that transparent so that the market can start to work that into valuations of real estate. And so tenants can use that to help them make decisions because it'll help inform their total cost of leasing during the lifetime of the building. You know, I think that data transparency and consistency and making that as visible as possible could have a tremendous impact on the market. 
I also think, you know, we're about to push trillions of dollars out the door through budgets and federal stimulus and infrastructure bills. Targeting that in the right way to decarbonize the built environment could help catalyze all kinds of technological innovation and building investment that we wouldn't see otherwise. So figuring out a way to take advantage of the federal stimulus is another great opportunity, I think, to drive decarbonization. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. I think there is such an opportunity there, not just for the tenants, but also for pretty savvy real estate development companies to start to build proactively to meet standards or help tenants meet standards and also help building owners sort of attract the, that class A tenant because the nearly all large companies have some sort of sustainability goals, at least a few environmental ones, maybe a science-based target, maybe a net zero goal for carbon. And being in a building that helps you achieve that or makes the achievement of that more possible, more feasible in a shorter period of time is going to be a key differentiator going forward. Similar to what you said about with neighbors, having that ability to measure, report, and act, having those three buckets is so important for for future tenants and to also keep quality class A tenants in the future for the private sector. So, you know, we've talked a lot about ULI and some of the benefits that a company gets when joining ULI and the education component of it and the thought leadership there. If a company wants to join ULI, what is that process to do to join ULI? Well, we have two levels to join. You can join as an individual, either as an associate member, so that you can get access to all of our content and a discount to all of our major events, or as a full member to work your way into leadership within the organization and get deeper discounts on events. And you can also join as a company. So if you own buildings, you can join ULI Greenprint. And the process is just to submit an application to our ULI Greenprint team and uh, become part of the community of practice. So uh, yeah, you can join as an individual or as an organization. All right. I think that's a great place to end it. Thank you so much, Billy Grayson, for joining the ESG Matters podcast. You gave us a lot to think about and get excited about the future. So thank you so much. Great. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the ESG Matters podcast. I am your host, Amat Gomez, signing off. If you liked what you heard, please like, share, and subscribe to ESG Matters podcast across all podcast providers. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, feel free to reach out to me at Amat Gomez on LinkedIn. And I look forward to hearing back from you. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you.